Why am I choosing to write about this multi-front assault on our society, culture, families, and very way of life? Because I see it, I know where it is headed, and I refuse to choose to accept it. The 10 working principles for a healthy society. How to push back against the social media platforms. How to get your family strong again. You can get it anywhere books are sold on February 27th. Donald Whitehead, Executive Director, National Coalition for the Homeless. He brings more than 20 years of experience in serving and advocating for persons experiencing homelessness to NCH, including five years experiencing homelessness himself. Inertia, the tendency for bodies at rest to remain at rest. Mm -hmm. And momentum, the tendency for bodies in motion to remain in motion. If we take somebody that has just been sitting 20 hours a day in a tent on a sidewalk, which has got to be the most boring existence, those days have to seem like weeks long. Right. But they're used to doing very little to nothing. So now we move them into a place, they're inert. They're sitting there, and it seems to me that. The caseworkers are so important because it's really hard sometimes to self-start from zero. But if you've got someone there that's coming by saying, okay, look, let's get a haircut. Let's get some decent clothes. Let's talk about what's your consequential knowledge. What is it you know how to do? What did you do before? Did you work on cars? Did you have good people skills? I mean, to really get them to start putting small goals in front of themselves and move. I've seen people that I've worked with that when you got them clean, you got them haircuts, you got women where they got any kind of modest wardrobe, anything where they sat taller, they stood tall, they wanted to do the next thing. Absolutely. But it just takes so little that I think they could really move. And drug treatment, the same thing. All of a sudden, they've got a place to live. They start saying, all right, I need to ask more of myself, but they need that little bit of help. How much follow-up and how much casework do these people get once they're in a stable home? Well, so permanent supportive housing is not just the housing, it's housing and services. So everything you just described is what that case manager is trying to do. Um, but they're giving the person the agency to make that decision. And and it isn't you have to do this tomorrow. You can get there over the, a period of time. You can gradually get there. Um, and I believe that we should also do that in the shelter system. And that's what I did um, in the shelter I operated in Orlando. So, you know, I had job fairs. Um, I had recreational activities. I had motivational um, uh, segments that, that happened at the shelter. So the housing first mentality doesn't have to be giving someone a house right then. It could also be looking to see what that next option is while they're in a shelter situation. So giving them uh, case management, giving them uh, all uh, kinds of things that build on their own skills, the asset building that you talked about. And, you know, that's actually what happened to me. So I, you know, uh, 
have been an actor in my life. I've, I've done theater. I've done a few movies. I've done a bunch of commercials uh, prior to me becoming homeless. And when I talked to my case manager and told them about that, they created a job for me that allowed me to utilize all those skills. And it, it, it was so impactful that I never went back to acting or comedy or the stuff that I used to do, I stayed involved in the homeless movement. And, you know, you it, it's it's incredibly tough to do that for everybody, but everybody has that something. They were an artist, they were a welder, they were a singer, they worked in a factory. And if you do that, what you described, if you tap into whatever that skill set is, uh, and that's what case managers are doing every day. Um, they're working with people uh, within those permanent supportive housing units. And they're also providing people that have already done that. Um, I had a, a guy that I, I he became a mentor. And what he said is the reason I do this is I want people to see that they can get to the other side by seeing me do it myself. And so um, we we have a lot of programs that have those ingredients. Unfortunately, not all do, of course. Not all of the programs have the adequate supportive services to move people on. Um, but part of that, again, lies in in the, the lack of a overall full sale government response. So instead of HHS and, and labor and all these other uh, 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 governmental agencies uh, providing resources at the same level that HUD does, we're not seeing that. If we could see that, then then what you say would be something that would be happening more regularly. How much do you see it now with people that you've gotten off the street, gotten into a stable home? How much do they actually attend day treatment for rehab? How much do they actually go to work? What are the stats on people that take initiative and go to the next level? It's hard to quantify that across the country. But um, I know my success rates in, in transitional and shelter were like in the 70 percent range. If you give people that opportunity, they'll take advantage of it. Not 100 percent. Uh, but I, I believe that most of the programs like permanent supportive housing has a 90 percent success rate for people just staying in the housing. And if they stay in the housing, everything else is possible. Um, you know, over several years, it's still at 70 percent. You know, obviously we lose some people. These are the most vulnerable people on the street. So their life expectancy is going to be a little shorter. But even four years out, people are still at the 70 percent range. Um, so when we provide these opportunities, the problem is we we have a really tough time finding units for people to rent. You know, all of the characters, caricatures that people see um, and, you know, uh, I know the young man is is really trying to do his best to help with the TikTok videos. But when we villainize people, it it really, you know, the, the caricature that's created really doesn't allow people to understand that these are like the person next door. And if we give them a, a hand up, not a handout, uh, we can really change, you know, the direction of this country. We we you know, once we we actually have an impact on homelessness, it impacts every other layer of society. Um, and so if we could just convince people that people are people, you and I are perfect examples. I mean, we're doing our best to give back. And and we're, you know, I see this as my ministry. I, I do this because I think I went through those things to prepare me for this. And so, you know, if people just 
you know, looked at who's truly been a, a, a victim of this issue uh, and not rely on the stereotypes, we, we could really start to make some difference. Well, I'm a believer in it because I don't think I was particularly good at it. But when I was on the street, I had a job every day. And I think a lot of people out there did have a job every day. I did as well. Yeah, I was young, but I was tall, so I looked old enough to have a job. But, you know, I just went up and down the street. And this was back in the 60s. There weren't so many big chain stores. There were a lot of mom and pops in downtown Kansas City. And you just go from door to door, hey, do you need any work done today? And you get a lot of no's. So you customize your pitch and say, you got a stock room that needs cleaning up? And I say, no, nah, get out of here. And pretty soon, guy's wife said, hey, he's got a good point. Looks like a tornado went through there. Absolutely. Pretty soon, you got a job cleaning up a stock room, and it lasts two or three days. Then they take you to the guy two doors down. They know and said, this kid did a really good job cleaning up my stock room. Then you're cleaning up his down there. And then pretty soon, they let you sleep in the stock room at night. And then before you know it, you kind of got a little cottage industry going on, you know, you can work it out if you do, and then you take pride in it. Absolutely. And you get going. And I saw a lot of people do that. And you're right. It's kind of a contagion effect. You see your buddy and say, hey, I got a job. Get, get a job, man. I can Let me introduce you to somebody. You can help me do this. I think people want to do better. They just need that first step. And it just seems to me that what you're doing makes all the sense in the world. Mm -hmm. I think the audience today, when you and I were working together, it seemed like we put a face on this. Yes. And I know you didn't like seeing those TikTok videos, but I thought it was good to say this is less than 1%. Right. He did. But if we don't acknowledge that, people say we're just whitewashing this and not acknowledging that these places are stinky and that there are some dangerous characters in there. And if we acknowledge, they say, okay, you know, they're being straight up about this, but those are human beings in there and we need to help. And, you know, sometimes they're not even homeless. I mean, so when I hear people talk about like the needles and stuff on the street, we don't know who left those needles there. We don't know if they're homeless or housed or, or the, the CEO of a company, um, you know, and, and we also need to remember the origins of some of those epidemics. I mean, you know, there was no, um, it didn't happen by mistake that the opioid epidemic started. I mean, the co the companies that started that knew that it was going to cause addiction issues. And some of them are paying, you know, huge fines for that. But we blame the people at the other end instead of blaming the people that started that in the first place. They were targeted and victims. Yeah. And, and the crack epidemic, we know the federal government had a role in that. And what I'm saying is, is those institutions should be paying reparations to uh, people that are homeless. Uh, people who are forced into the issue and the people who were responsible for that should be responsible for the solution. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television.
There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. What is the cost, if you know, to the government for people that are chronically unsheltered at this point? Because it isn't free. No, and and— when we created a solution called the Bring America Home Act in 1981, I'm sorry, I said 1981, I meant 2001, um, the, the, the last bill that's still in existence that still funds homelessness was 1987, so I'm not that far off, but it was about the, the, the Congressional Budget Office scored it at about $81 billion. Um, I think it's probably in the trillions now. Um, the the solution cost and and I think you know if you think about the cost of you know what HUD spends it's you know in the in the for for homeless assistance um, it's in the billions of dollars that that HUD is spending right now um, and I don't you know I'm I'm uh, have a mini statistics in my head I can't remember that exact number today but it's uh, it is actually not as as robust as it was in the eighties. But it's very expensive. What I want people to understand is that these people on the street aren't free. No. So putting them in a home first situation, you got to look at the Delta because they're not free on the street. No. We're looking at the difference between the two. It's not zero versus putting them into an apartment or a house. There's a cost that's there. To begin with. And and that's one of the um, big issues around criminalization, because all of that money that's already been spent, whether it's through hiring outreach workers or case managers or intake workers, every time you move someone, you have to start that process over again. And so we're wasting dollars, not only the cost of incarcerating people, we're wasting the HUD dollars who've already been used on those people um, or the health care for the homeless dollars that go into people getting free access to health care. Those dollars are actually going out the window and, and they need to be doubled down on every time we move people. They have to restart that process. I, I just don't think like some of the elected officials, when they come up with these myopic solutions, and it's really because people are complaining, you know, homeowners are complaining, you know, it's too close to their communities. Um, You know, the reaction from elected officials, especially around this time when their elections coming up are these, these quick fixes, these myopic solutions that really, you know, you have to recreate every year and you never get to anything final. You know, I talked about Tennessee in Miami. They want to put people on an island. Um, they want to move all the homeless people to an island. Like a leper community. Yes, yes. <laughs> and and it's right next to a hazardous waste facility. Oh, that's great. Um, you know, in Missouri, they made it illegal to do permanent supportive housing. So, you know, it, it there's all these, there, there's a group that's going around the country that's actually um, promoting model legislation that really, um, uh, really uh, is is not productive, which is causing harm to communities. It's called the Cicero Institute. And I mentioned them before, but they they are providing this model legislation. And even, you know, states like California, more 
progressive communities, one of the things they promote is what just passed in California, the, the California Cares Initiative, which would allow people to be put into mental health facilities um, uh, uh, un- involuntarily. Um, so we think that that's an approach um, that, again, it's a myopic solution because even when they go to those facilities, there's no housing on the other end. So you may have uh, mitigated the issue for a very short period of time, but at the end, you haven't ended their homelessness. Reshma Shajani. She is the first Indian American woman to run for Congress, worked with the House and Senate to develop a, quote, Marshall Plan for Moms in response to the crisis mothers have endured because of COVID. What got you interested in all of this? Well, you know, I'm the daughter of refugees. Uh, My parents came to this country in 1973. They were expelled by the dictator Idi Amin. Uh, There were two of a thousand refugees that got status to come to this country because they were engineers. My father, though, had to work as a machinist in a plant. You know, my mother sold cosmetics. And my dad, when he when I was very little, he would read me these little Reader's Digest books about Dr. King and Mahatma Gandhi. And there was something about hearing those stories when I was little about these change makers, these these warriors you know, these people who are put on the earth to, to do something that stuck with me. And so I've always wanted to fight for people like my parents, vulnerable, poor, you know, people who, you know, others had counted out. And, and as we know, Dr. Phil, a lot of those are in our society and across the world are women and girls. I've always been moved by the plight of women and girls. It's always been the thing the people that I've wanted to fight for. Do you think that's changing in America at least, or do you think there's still that big gender difference in the way they're treated and the way they see themselves? I thought it was changing, you know, and then the pandemic hit and I, and, and women are in crisis. You know, Dr. Phil, the, the, you know, the CDC reported that the, the second subgroup besides young people that the, have the highest levels of anxiety and depression are moms. Moms don't break. But there's something about the past two years in the pandemic, there's something about our public policies, there's something about our structure that we have in our society that is really pushing mothers to the limit. And, you know, one of the things I've really been reflecting on, you know, is the fact that, like, we we just think that in in our country, or in, in America in some in some ways that, like, Motherhood, parenthood is a personal choice. And so you don't get anything from your government, your society, your neighbor, your friends, your workplace. But like you don't have a functioning society, you know, that has a declining birth rate. You know, family values, being at family is like such a core part of what it means to be an American. And I think we've lost a little bit of that. I'm way older than you. So I've grown up through some different generations. And in the 50s, we were not a double-income society to the degree we are now. I think now the statistics are high 70s, maybe even low 80s double-income society, whereas in the 50s, it was maybe half that. So now we've got both parents working outside the home, bringing in income that the family relies on. And Previously, families adjusted to living on one income, and the second income was what you fell back on if something happened. 
Right. Somebody got sick or a job was lost or unexpected things came up. Then that second partner would get a job and bridge the gap. But now we're a largely double income society and a hundred percent of those two incomes are being absorbed. So there's no cushion right. there, but women are a vital part of the family's economic lifeline. That's really showing the pay gap, right? Because they're yeah. out there in the workplace, but working for less. That's right. That's right. You know, women are not a must, a, a nice to have in the workforce. They're a must have. But the problem is, Dr. Phil, we built workplaces on the fact that we've treated women as a nice to have. So, you know, we have work days that are nine to five and school days that are eight to three. Because back in, like you said, in the 50s, he was at work and she was at home and she could pick up the kids. Now it doesn't work that way. And so all of society is, is based on an outdated model that no longer exists. And who's picking up the slack? Women. And the pandemic really exposed this. So like when schools shut down, a lot of families in America treat schools, I know my parents said, as daycare centers. Of course. And so when schools shut down and you still had to work, you had no, no system of care. And, you know, when we created this thing where you had to like log in your kid at Zoom, you know, I have a kindergartner. I can't be like, hey, Sean, log yourself on. See you later. No, I got to be right there with him while I'm trying to keep my job. And so when that happened, it was women that were doing that unpaid labor, that homeschooling, the cooking, the cleaning, the putting on your mask, making sure you wiped off everything, right? Just in case the virus, I mean, all, all of that while you were maintaining your full-time job. And, and, and nobody was looking at this saying, whoa, 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 we got to rethink this. I can't cite the study, so I'll talk about this anecdotally, but there are studies out there to this, and if people can find them and send them to me, I'll appreciate it. But I recall a study from many years ago that looked at the number of steps, the number of activities that stay-at-home moms did compared to mothers working outside the home. And it wasn't totally isomorphic, but very close to the number of steps, the number of movements and activities that stay-at-home moms did compared to mothers working outside the home. And so these people that think, well, stay-at-home moms, they just kind of sit around on the couch and eat bonbons all day. Not true. Nope. What it amounts to is a working mom goes and does what she does. Then when she gets through with that, she has another full-time job that she does on top of the job that she leaves the home and does. So it's like two full-time jobs. Yep. When you said that the pandemic has shown them to be the second group that has been impacted by increases in anxiety, depression, stress, mm -hmm loneliness, even some learned helplessness creeping in there. That's absolutely borne out by the statistics. And I think it is because of this feeling of I'm now overwhelmed. I, I've got the financial pressure. Jobs are lost. My children are showing emotional problems, regression, depression, anxiety. Here, I'm trying to keep all of this together and can't do it. And so many of these women can't do their job working at home because it's a service job, just like a lot of men that drive a truck or they're working with their hands or whatever. They can't do it from home. They have to be on site to do it. So that creates tremendous anxiety. That's right. And I think the thing that we told ourselves before, at least I certainly did, is 
he just doesn't know. You know, I'm, I married one of the good ones. You know, I made sure that I married someone who did the cooking, the cleaning, all that <laughs> stuff, right? Like, but then when we had a kid, when we had my first son, Sean, I took my maternity leave and he didn't. And then suddenly I knew where all the stuff was, right? I right. had, and so my to-do list went like this and his shrunk. And it is the constant thing that we argue about, right? One third of divorces are, because, are about the chores. But part of it, it was, I think for a lot of us, we told ourselves, well, our partners just don't know. They just don't know all the things that we do. And then we got locked in the house with them. And they knew, they saw us doing our laundry in between our Zoom meetings. They saw everything that we were doing and how much we were doing. The whole world did. Our president did. Yes. But no one said, oof, not just thank you. Thank you for saving our country. But also, like, this isn't fair. This isn't right. We got to rethink this. And, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, if we know that we need women's labor for the economy, and that in order to do that, and that women are doing two thirds of caregiving work, they're doing two and a half jobs before they do their full time job. We need to be thinking about what are the structures that we can put into place, you know, that can actually support working women and working families, you know, with this domestic work. Um, so I think, it, you know, you always think about like, what are the silver linings of crises? And like, this is the silver lining of it because reality is like nobody wants to have kids. Young women look at me and they're like, no, thank you. And it, as you know, a society that has a declining birth rate is a dying society. Is that the reason you think? Do you think that's the reason there's a decline? How do you assess that? I think it's all about the cost. I mean, think about it. Like, you know, I think about my parents, they were refugees. My mother couldn't afford the $50 a week for childcare. And so from the time that I was 10, I was a latchkey kid. My sister would pick me up at middle school. We would run home, lock the door, right? Because back then it's like we were terrified someone's going to kidnap us. Right, I think about I think about my mother and how she felt sitting at her work at 245 thinking about her babies running home by themselves. But the point is is that so many families have always had to make these unconscionable choices. You know, a story I talk about in my book Pay Up about a mom who had to go to work at a pizza parlor. She didn't have childcare. So she left her kids at home and she got put in jail for child endangerment. So, you know, we don't give families slack and the cost of childcare has just skyrocketed. You know, in New York City, it used to be $15 for a babysitter. Now it's 25 So, wow. you know, it's the largest cost center of, you know, so many families. And so it is also like an economic issue. You know, we, you basically work to work and not work to live. And we got to restructure society so that we work to live and not work to work. I've heard a lot of people talk to me about the fact that spending time with themselves has created a bit of an existential crisis. They've had some time to think, what is this really all about? I was doing all this stuff before that when I quit doing it, it seemed kind of silly that I took it so seriously. Yeah, it's powerful. I mean, you see this with care work. And I write about this in my book, Pap. It's like, you know, people always say to me, Rush, what, what do men think about your book? And I'm like, no, 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 they're with me. You know, they want they want to spend time with their kids too. You know, you're the first time you had dads who like didn't do the two hour commute and took their son to school or had them watch, you know, soccer. They became a part of the family and they recognize that like that's good for reducing my diabetes and my heart attack levels and all of the it's healthy for me. And I feel alive. I feel present. 
So I do think that like we're going through this kind of existential crisis, like you said, in America, in terms of like ending this kind of hustle culture that we have. Drive, 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 work 80 hours a week. You know, don't put your head up. Don't have any joy. You know, don't spend time with your family or, you know, read a book. And I think people are like, no, 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 I don't want to live that way. You know, I want to live differently. And it, it is really this resistance, you know, towards in some ways what is like inherent, we think is inherent in a capitalist society, but that is at odds with living life. Um, and I, I do think, especially now as this is like, everything's opening up and you have to then set your own boundaries about how you want to interact and how you don't want to interact. That's like, that's a lot of permission to people. And in giving them control back over, over their life is something that I think we should stop trying to fight. Dr. Phil here. Come February 27th, you're going to be able to pick up a book called We've Got Issues, and you know we do. This is a book that says it's going to teach you how to stand strong for America's soul and sanity. And in this book, I set forth 10 principles for saving this society from going off the deep end. 10 principles for protecting your family. 10 principles for giving you what you need to flourish and have the life that you want for yourself and for your children and for your grandchildren. We've taken some wrong turns. We've been letting the loudest voices dictate some of the thinking that has taken us way off course. Well, I'm speaking up and bringing us back to the center of the road. I hope you'll pick this book up and I hope you'll read it with a real open mind because I'm pushing back against a lot of what you've been hearing. Somebody had to do it. Might as well be me. February 27th, we've got issues. Dr. Ingrid Haynes Trailer served two decades in P-12 public education as a teacher and administrator and now serves as the director of the National Literacy Institute. She also teaches bachelor's, master's, and doctoral level literacy courses and has published books and numerous journal articles on literacy instruction. Now, she actively researches best practices in literacy instruction for at-risk students and conducts literacy training and workshops across the nation to build instructional capacity in teachers who teach our most fragile learners. My mother would tell me, uh, people would say, why is he reading that? Because I'd go to the library and check out five or six books, and it would be these crazy little books like Left Half Back or something about drag racing or whatever. And she always said, I don't care what he's reading as long as he's reading. They would be these kind of fantasy kind of books or whatever, but I would read four or five of them a day. It was just exercising the reading. It wasn't war and peace, but it was reading. And it got to where I would read like a page at a time instead of a word at a time. And then when it came time to read something that mattered, then it was really easy. But even comic books, if kids will read anything, it seems to me that it's good that they're reading. So listen, Doc, I compared, you know, reading or learning to read. Like I played basketball and I was pretty good. In order to be good, you, you got to practice and you got to do it over and over again and practice the right way. So 
when we do our sessions or trainings at the National Literacy Institute, I'm not selling the program. I don't. I tell them all the time. I don't. Dad, what what can I buy for our for our school? I don't have anything. All I have to do is give them knowledge on how to be an insightful, knowledgeable teacher on how to teach literacy. But it, to me, it's just like practicing to be you know in a sport, basketball or baseball. You got to do it over and over again to get good. You, you got to work that muscle, right? And you got to build that schema. But a lot of times, again, these kids are not reading. And then a lot of our teachers are not trained to teach reading. And especially if that child is coming with a reading deficit or um, some type of area of concern. And so area of need. Let me make you laugh, Dr. Phil. I'm, we're getting ready to do this thing called book swap. And book swap is where the children bring a, a book from home and then we give them a new book. Just the other day, I had someone say, do you think... Doc, that's going to work. How many kids do you think are going to be able to bring a book from home? And I had a lot of people saying they don't <laughs> think that it's going to work. I, I couldn't understand. We did it before COVID and I've done it before, but I, I've had a lot of people say, do you actually believe they're going to bring a book from home? Do you think they have books from home? I, I just that threw me off for a second. But it's where the kids come and we have authors that that speak about their books and stuff right. like that. And then they they give the child their book. And I, I, for the first time, I heard quite a few educators tell me they can't wait to see how I'm going to pull this off because they can't imagine children bringing books from home that they don't have books at home. Wow. So, yeah, I just that. I'd be interested uh, to that, see how that goes, if they're actually yeah. reading in the home. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But they said they didn't, they didn't have books. So I, you know, I, you know, and I, I'm, I'm such a person like, again, I play sports. I like to win because I heard that. I'm like, I can't wait to do it, though. But. That, that they, they want to see. They don't think the kids will have books at home to come and swap with me. Basically what they said, we don't want you to be embarrassed in front of authors because the kids may not bring books to get a new book. Dr. Phil, we did a conference. Let me just say this other piece. You know, I'm just, we're, I'm having a good conversation with you. This year was my 20th year um, doing the National Literacy Institute. And Ron Clark was my um, speaker. So a lot of times he and I do a lot of stuff together. I told him this time I wasn't going to let him outdance me. So I had practice on my um, move. So I, I didn't let, I, I think I, I did him this time. I outdanced him. But we had over three to five, I think it might, might've been close to 5,000 teachers at this conference. And when I tell you the spirits were high, I mean, it was a lot of great presentations, but the morale, the the feedback that we got, people were like, we they had never attended a conference um, like ours. I, we try to bring a little entertainment as well as good presenters that know how to focus on, you know, helping children read and read on grade level. That's what we, we literacy. It was really good, though. This is our 20th year. We're just trying to reach as many teachers and provide them with support to really make an impact in the lives of children. Yeah, that's that's my focus. What are we going to do about this teacher shortage? Oh, listen, we got to make it more attractive to want a major in education. You know, here it is. They come to higher ed and I'm in the audit. I'm in the area and I'm trying to promote people to come into my you know organization. Hey, do you want to be a teacher? And they all look like, no, I'm going to business. I'm going here. So we got to figure out how to make the, the, the field a little bit more attractive, right? Um, I, I do think we have to increase. And I don't, and Dr. I don't feel bad about saying that. I've been in education, the only thing I've ever done. So I feel like I, I have the credibility as the kids say, 
I feel like I can say we need to increase the pay. It needs to be a little bit more so that, that teachers can have just one job. I go into schools and I hear teachers saying they work two jobs. I just want you to get paid, you know, and then work this one job, go home and rest and come back and be energized the next day. I don't want you to leave and then have to go work a night shift um, to be able to, 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 to do that. Um, I also want to, I think we, we got to give, we got to really talk about how to teach all children, right? Um, Dr. Field, my first year of teaching was difficult. I, you know, I'm African-American, but I had, and I had never been around uh, groups that might have been from a lower socioeconomic status. Let me just put it that way. So even though I, I looked like my parents, I still had a difficult time being able to understand my parents, right? And that still happens now. So we got to make sure that we understand how to do culture responsive teaching, you know, how to make sure we can be able to teach students who may not look like you or that may look like you, but come from different backgrounds. I think that may help attract. And then I think we got to get, we, we got to make sure that uh, teachers have a voice. I hear so many teachers saying they don't listen to what I actually need in the classroom. Um, to increase the numbers. Well, have we got non-educators directing the educational system? Of course. I think, you know, I'm going to get in trouble, but I think that's who tries to make all the decisions. You've never taught before. You see, you think because you're in this certain role, you make these decisions, you know, top down. Yeah, yes. I think that's one of the main problems. And then everybody has something to say when the, the school is not performing, but they never go to that school or to that source to get, you know, what is needed. So, yeah, everyone. Yes, I do. A lot of people that are making decisions are non-educators. I do. Every teacher I've ever talked to with any depth gets into their own pocket to buy materials for their classroom. They bring stuff from home. They go to Hobby Lobby. They go to wherever they buy construction paper, they buy scissors, they buy materials, they bring things from home to make projects for the class. Now, they're not getting paid enough to live, but yet they're getting in their own pocket to go buy materials for the classroom. And then they have summer jobs, they have weekend jobs. Yeah, That mm -hmm. just doesn't attract enough or the kind of people that we really need. Yeah. Yeah. And even the people that say they love and it's a calling over their life to be an educator, they feel funny when, you know, they discuss they would like to get paid more because people say we should do it. And, and we do do it because it's a part of us and it's our calling. And we love doing it. But if we realistic, if I'm only making sixty thousand dollars and I'm having to buy all of these resources, it's just not adding up. And the time frame. Yeah, Dr. Phil, my mom, education, 42 years and my both parents in education, my mom did a little budget for me. So she said, okay, you're bringing home this amount of money. You have to subtract this amount of money every pay period so you can buy supplies for your classroom. So I automatically knew that I was going to have to, you know, subtract this amount of money so that I could buy resources. I ended up telling when I was a chairperson of a department, I ended up telling the students, you may have to look at your own financial, um, you know, money to be able to support some things in your classroom, like supplies and supplies for the students and resources. Yes, Dr. Phil. Yes, I'm telling you, they're leaving. Here it is. I'm coming in to do a parent night and some teachers are leaving because they go to a, a second job mm -hmm, and working on weekends. What do you think of this, what they're calling warm body um, 
Dr. Phil, we talked about that. I saw all the little comments people made. We talked about that. Listen, you, you, I, I told you, you, you wouldn't go to a, a physician who had never gone to medical school. You just wouldn't do it. So why would I just put anyone into um, the classroom to teach? I just disagree. Go ahead and email me and tell me what you think about me. But you just wouldn't do it. If you were not feeling well or something, you would not just go somewhere and, and say, okay, you, you want to be a doctor. Okay, well, you know what? Work on me. That's just not, but we do that. And then Dr. Phil, everyone says they can be a teacher. That, everyone, it's more than just teaching the content. It's teaching and managing and motivating and bridge. It's a whole lot of stuff. You got 30 different personalities in that classroom. You may have five to six different abilities in that classroom. Oh, man. You know, so it really it does something to me if I'm in the streets and I'll and someone has all the the answers for us as teachers. That this, uh, and then they say, well, what I would do? No, that you no do it first, and then let me let me see. I went in. Let me make you laugh. I went in uh, uh, last year and I did a a model a lesson. Right? I think I'm an expert, Dr. Phil. I went in to model a lesson with middle schoolers. I, I had never sweated so hard in my life. I was sweating. It did not go well. And I was modeling to teachers. And so I laughed because I went in thinking one thing, right? And the teachers just sat, they sat back like, hmm, the Dr. Inger, what would you do? It was just, it, I ended up saying, you know what? Secondary is difficult. So let's figure out how to work together. The prince, and I told the principal, let's do something else because we under I now understand what this teacher is experiencing when trying to teach the students. And so my team and myself, we laughed about that whole experience. Dr. Phil, I tell you, it was so difficult going in. I said, I imagine what substitute teachers, how they feel going in. Yes. The students let me know quickly I was not the main teacher. I did ask. You know, I did. I had some problems with classroom management. I was surprised because I really had a good lesson. Um, I had some students that just tell me they didn't want to participate. I had a student, you know, and no matter how good the lesson was, I had a student to, to, to leave the class. I had to go out the class to ask him what was wrong. He did come back in, but this is what he told me. He said he didn't make the basketball team and he was in a bad mood. Mm -hmm. So I said, maybe next year you'll make the team. But hey, let's come back in the classroom. So, yeah. Dr. Phil, it's, it's difficult. And you don't know what they've come from at home either. So they all bring all of that to school with them. The only good thing that happened from that lesson is the fact that I found out that he didn't make the basketball team. And that's the reason why he was cutting up during my lesson. Um, but we had a soft conversation about basketball and making trying out next year and whatever case may be. Dr. Phil, he came back in the class and said, I'll do what you asked me to do. He, When I originally asked him to do something, he said no and walked out and said, you're not the teacher. And then when we went outside to talk about what was going on, he told me we came back in. Now, that to me, with the principal and I talked about, that's a seasoned educator. A, a, a new educator would have thought, let me write him up. Let me put him out because he was disrespectful. But the issue was that he did not make the team. And a lot of times teachers don't realize these kids have feelings. These kids, some days they have bad days. He was having a bad day. And it's not necessarily a behavior problem, which we got to put him out and write him up and, and kick him out of school. But he didn't make the basketball team. And for some kids, playing sports is very important. Guy Fieri one of the most recognizable and influential culinary stars in the world. He is a chef, restaurateur, 
New York Times bestselling author, Emmy Award-winning TV host, and a very generous philanthropist. You're doing some amazing things. Your rescue trailer, you've served over 120,000 meals in relief at natural disasters like the Tubbs Fire, the campfire and car fire, the Kincaid fire, 120,000 meals. You should really be proud of that. Well, I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I think just as you do, you're, you're concerned about your community and concerned about the, the well-being of people. And you can't always wait for those situations to, to invite you to come help them. you got to sometimes put yourself into them. So when we had the first big fires up here and it burned about a mile, not even a mile, about a block from my house, and we evacuated and everything was crazy. And I was, uh, I had to leave that morning after the fire. And we didn't even know the level of devastation that had happened here in the town of Santa Rosa. And I had to fly down to do a, do a charity event um, down in Texas. And so as I landed to do the charity event, my dad called me and said, man, you know, it was because I left early. He says, it's bad. He says, uh, when you get a chance, you need to come home. So I finished up the charity event, flew home. And as I was flying home, I called my guys and I said, you know, I hear there's much people living at the gymnasiums. <clears throat> I mean, it, it burned down half the, half the town. I said, what are they eating? So I called my buddy who works for Salvation Army. And he said, yeah, we're feeding them uh, uncrustable sandwiches and cold hot dogs. And I said, how many people are we talk about? He says, there's about 5,000 people. So I called oh, all my chefs, geez. all my guys that work in my team, and I said, fire up the smokers, because I have a bunch of restaurant equipment. I, I mean, I, I cook everything. And I said, fire up the smokers. I'm going to get home. We're going to start feeding people. So we just drove into the parking lot, unannounced, just drove in with these big smokers, set up tables, started cooking food, and just started serving food to people. And everybody's like, where's this coming from? I said, we're just here to feed. And just... I mean, like, I mean, it was the only game in town. Everything, the whole town was shut down. There was no power in the town. So we yeah. started feeding people. And fortunately, about three days later, some friends of ours from a group called OBR, Operation Barbecue Relief, showed up. And they have a big swing. They know a lot of folks. And so they brought in a bunch of people. And then we were feeding them by, you know, tens of thousands. Well, it gave me a thought. And it's and, it, and, and that next week, I said, I'm not a, I'm not a, a governed body that has any rules to follow and I can afford to pay for this myself. I'm just going to create my own rescue team that when shit goes down, I can handle it. Right. So I went and built, I built a trailer cost me $400,000. Um, and I got some great donations to, for equipment. We got a Freightliner gave us a big Freightliner truck to haul it with because it's 48 feet long. It's massive. And we can feed anywhere from five to 10,000 people out of this trailer. And when the fires happened, we could just deploy. So we started doing that, and that was great. We were able to help. We cooked fifteen. We took uh, cooked Thanksgiving dinner for fifteen thousand uh, up at the Paradise Fire. But you know what it was is after that we started saying, well, we don't have to be there first because you know what happens sometimes is when people are on these fires for thirty or forty days, they get pretty burned out. So what yeah. we started to do is coming in as a health and welfare. We started coming in as a positive to kind of what they, as they will say, break the clock, like resetting the clock for them because it's been the same monotonous situation. And all of a sudden, here comes Guy Fieri and his buddies and chefs from all over the country, and they're cooking us barbecue and making macaroni. You know, they're making pot, they're making uh, uh, mac and cheese with bacon on it. They're yeah. you know Hawaiian rolls and all this kind of stuff. And so 
it's really turned into a, an amazing program. And then when we realized that when the fires weren't happening, now I still have all these resources of all these volunteers. Um, we have the trailer. So now what we do is when we don't have disasters, we go around uh, and feed veterans and feed first responders. So we were just in New Jersey uh, two weeks ago. We fed 1,200 veterans in New Jersey. We went to two different VFWs, put on two separate luncheons, one on Friday, one on Saturday, and just invited VF, just invited veterans and their families. Just come down. We're going to feed you, feed you for free and just to say thank you. So we do that, and then we go to these first responder camps um, like the CHP and the sheriff and the, you know, the, the fire departments and just say, Hey, everybody in this area of Solano, you know, or Napa, whatever this day, we're going to be here in this parking lot. Come on down. We'd love to feed you guys. So we just try to do positive welfare things. But on top of that, we have a reading advocacy program for kids in, you know, low income schools. We have, uh, we have a variety of packages of things that we try to do, but I can't be given this opportunity. I can't, have this opportunity that I've had in my career and not take it and do something with it because otherwise I think I'd be wasting so much of the energy that comes along with, it. you know, I gotta, I gotta make sure that I share with people and, and shine the light. I get all the light show, you know, on me. And I know you do the same thing. I just try to divert as much as I can to like, Hey, let's look over here, but we've got some great sponsors and some great donors. And uh, we give out a lot of scholarships. We do a lot of culinary schools and we got, we got a lot going on. Yeah. Well, you know, when you were talking about, Triple D, and I was saying, what's the impact when one of them gets on the show? You said, well, it depends. If there's a great character, and there's great food, and there's a great story, then it really turns out well. And that's what's so much fun talking to you about all of this, because you make great food, you're a great character, and you sure have a great story. And it's uh, no accident you. that you are the most famous person in the food business, <laughs> the food industry, the restaurant business in the entire country and have been for a long time because you fit the triple D formula. It works for them. It works for you. So there you go. What goes around comes around, right? I've never heard anybody ever spin that back on me. I'm just <laughs> telling you, only you, you're the one that sees, you know, you have that that 30,000 foot view on things. So of course you would turn that right back on me, but now I, I, I can see what you're saying with it. And it, it is, it's, it's so ironic that you would, that you would pick up on it and go, but um, no, being, being raised with good parents and in a great community and uh, staying grounded and staying. And I remember when you and I first met, you said, how did you end up this way? I, you know, I told you that story about my mom and dad and yeah. what great people I was just up in that little town Ferndale and, so the museum wrote me and said, uh, could you write the Ford for our, our community cookbook? We're going to make a cookbook with all the history of Ferndale. And I said, yeah. And I said, how many books are you going to sell? I said, we're going to sell a hundred. I said, that's all you can sell. And they said, no, we're going to, we're going to sell a thousand, but we just don't have any money. I said, how much are the cookbooks? They said, 10 bucks a piece. I said, all right, I'll buy all the cookbooks, 10,000 bucks. I'll, I'll pay for them. I'll write the Ford and I'll pay for the $10,000. And I said, but you have to sell the cookbooks for 40 bucks a piece. And they said, great. So we just sold all the cookbooks, made $40,000 to the museum, which is their annual budget. Yeah. And people like, and everybody's like, that's, and it's not where I come from, where I come from our community rallies like that. And I tell people this all the time. We can make a bigger difference in this world. You just have to move your, you just got to move your skew, maybe 10% more. Maybe it's not financial. Maybe it's 
participation, maybe it's uh, advocacy, maybe it's just vocal, being vocal, but who knows what it is. But if we just moved at 10%, I think we could fix a lot of these issues, these social issues that we have in our country uh, and could make this a lot better place, but we're not gonna do a bitching about it. You know, we're gonna have to really activate and participate one way or another, some form, shape or form, do something. But we we all, we are empowered. We're the greatest country in the world. We we brought ourselves from nothing a few different times and saved and, and turned this, the, this, righted this ship um, I really hope we get this straight. And I, you know, you're, uh, you're such a patriot and such a leader of the country. I, I, uh, I look forward to seeing how you continue to help us see the vision on this because it's, uh, it's, it's ours to lose folks, you know? Well, it is. And you're a perfect example of, like you say, you don't have to have a bunch of money to give a million dollars to a cause. If what you have to give is your time, what you have to give, I mean, maybe a little bit of this or a little bit of that. Robin and I work in the foster care system and the court-appointed special advocates that help kids in the system when they have to go into court and stuff. And she got involved and raised $100 million in volunteer services for CASA in a year just by people saying, hey, I don't have a lot of money, but I've got some time. Find a way. Everybody is complaining and there's so much divisiveness if you took just a little bit of that energy, like you say, and said, you know, what can I do? And you don't have to be organized. Hell, you drive by and see your truck out there, walk up and say, hey, can I serve? You know, give me a spoon. I'll put some beans on a plate. What? Just anything. We just need to take start. A, take a picture. Take a picture and make positive affirmations on social media and talk about something good people are doing in this world versus getting all negative and down. We got enough negative energy floating around out there. Let's counterbalance it with positive energy. You know how many good things that we have going on in our community that doesn't make the front page of the paper because sensationalism doesn't, you know, the sensationalism yeah. sells. So I'm, I'm with you, and uh, and please keep in mind that I'm always good. You know, I we play inside of our, uh, you know, inside of our fields of things that we do. But I'm a I'm a huge fan of kids and family, and uh, and children really are the future. So you keep in mind when you guys do another fundraiser, how I can lend my support on that, and either send some items or send a, a, a visit to Triple D or something, and let me know how I can lean on your uh, lean in on your project as well. I'd, I'd love to. I try to. I try to make sure that that's something I'm always involved in.